everybody and welcome to JTV. So some people decide when they want to grow up that they might want to become a doctor, some decide to become a lawyer, and others choose to become Nazi hunters. <laughs> well, well, very few actually, um, but we happen to be joined by one of those today. I'm extremely honoured to be joined by Dr. Ephraim Zurov, who is both a Holocaust historian and has been for many decades a Nazi hunter. He's the chief Nazi hunter at the Simon Wiesenthal Center and he's been, as I say, been doing this for a long time. He's written numerous books. Um, he's been honored throughout many European countries. He's worked with the United States Justice Department, lectured all over the world and has even been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Dr. Ephraim Zurov, thank you so much for joining us from Israel on JTV today. Thank you for having me as a guest, Ali. Well, I'm really, really intrigued to speak to you and learn about your, your, your kind of uh, life experiences dealing in a very niche area, which is such a critical and, and important area. And I know our viewers are going to be really fascinated to hear about this. I want to jump soon into all the work you've done in terms of trying to pin down uh, Nazi criminals. But before that, I just wanted to start off in your early life. Um, before we get to your main career. So go back to, you were born in America, in New York, in 1948. You studied history at Yeshiva University. Uh, you started off your sort of um, historian career chronicling the response of American Jewry, specifically Orthodox Jewry, to the Holocaust um, and focusing on the rescue attempts of American Orthodox rabbis, actually, from, from 1939. I just want to touch on that briefly, if you could tell us a bit about what, what kind of impact did, did that have and what, what, what was the impact of American Jewry um, on any kind of rescue attempts during the Holocaust? Okay. Um, first of all, the subject um, was very uh, important to me because I was coming from a uh, activist background had been very active on behalf of Soviet Jewry, especially on, on behalf of Soviet Jewry, but also on, on behalf of Ethiopian Jewry, Syrian Jewry. And um, I was very, I would say, intrigued and perturbed about the record of uh, American Jewry during that period. So just as an example, the first seminar paper I did in uh, Hebrew University in my master's studies at the Institute of Contemporary Jewry was I wanted to know what the average Jew could know about what was happening in Europe while it was happening or to what extent people were knowledgeable about the horrors of, of uh, the final solution and the extent to which it was being carried out. So I wrote a paper on the period from June 22nd, 1941, which was the day that the Nazis invaded so the Soviet Union. And in, in effect, there was the beginning of the implementation of the final solution by the Einsatzgruppen, the killing squads, until the end of December, 1942, by which time it was already acknowledged by the US government and uh, was, was covered in the media uh, in other words, some, quite a few stories about what was happening uh, in Europe, 
uh, even though there was some doubt as to the authenticity, as to the, um, of the facts, and very often these reports used to, used to write according to unconfirmed reports, according to uh, information from, let's say, Kiev or from Warsaw or wherever, such and such is the number of the Jewish victims, et cetera. But, but one of the things that was obvious was that the information was not treated as seriously as you would imagine. I'll give, I'll give you an example, which always stands out in my mind. In June of 1942, the Bund, the socialist anti-Zionist uh, political group, which was very strong in Poland, uh, issued a report that a million Jews had been murdered in Poland. Now, the New York Times had a daily column of terror and executions in Europe. And on that day, this a, a brief statement or two about that report appeared in the article. But the lead article was not that a million Jews had been killed in, in, uh, in Poland, according to the Bund. It was that four Allied pilots had been shot down over the North Sea. And the featured story on the front page of the New York Times was that Herbert Lehman, the governor of New York State, had donated his, his sneakers to the scrap rubber drive. So in other words, I mean, if, if you read this in, in 1972, when I, when I read it, I mean, this is so shocking. It, you don't know how to react to it uh, in a certain sense. But uh, there's no question that after December 42, it was common knowledge that the Germans were had unleashed a plan to mass murder the Jews of Europe. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a meeting of Jewish leaders with Roosevelt on December 8, 1942, at which the leaders submitted a document called Blueprint for Extermination, in which they stated very clearly that 2 million Jews had already been murdered, and, and I think it was 5 million more were in danger of annihilation. So, this answered one of my major questions, um, and um, but I, I still wanted to know also specifically what the community that I came from, that I was educated in, uh, modern Orthodox community, uh, had done during the war, and uh, I found out that there had been a rescue committee set up by Orthodox rabbis in the United States. And ironically, the archives of this organization were in the Yeshiva University, my alma mater, and a place where all my, both my parents worked there for Yeshiva University. My grandfather worked for Yeshiva University. So uh, it seemed only natural to choose that as a dissertation topic. And I wrote my MA about it on the period from 39 to 43, and then I, added material and I extended it till 19, till the end of the World War II, that became my PhD. And shifting now to, we're really looking at the late 70s, um, your focus became full-time Nazi hunting with the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which for those of you who don't know, is a Jewish human rights organization. Um, did you, I want to start off by you know, how this journey began and how your career in Nazi hunting began. Did you sort of fall into this role or did you feel like it's some kind of calling to do this? Listen, when people ask me, how did you become a Nazi hunter? 
my response is, do you want the practical answer or the mystical answer? Both. <laughs> so I have to tell you that contrary to what a lot of people tell me, very often after lectures, people come up to me and say, whoa, you know, you have my dream job. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a Nazi hunter. I wanted to catch those Nazis and torture them and kill them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to be perfectly honest, I had no such fantasies, nor was that ever my dream. My, my dream was to be the first Orthodox Jew to play in the NBA. But to be perfectly honest, there were two problems. One is you can't, in those days, certainly, you can't be an Orthodox Jew and play in the NBA. <laughs> Second of all, I was nowhere near good enough to play in the NBA. So you could say that basketball's loss is uh, Nazi hunting's gain. In any event, um, what happened was that when I went to, I went to uh, the States for two years to look for material for my doctorate, and I needed a job to be able to do that. And along came Rabbi Marvin Heyer, who, who established the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And he offered me a job as the first like, academic director. In other words, to help set up the archives, the library, uh, teach, uh, you know, and, and uh, whatever, whatever academic expertise was needed to help. And, and of course, to help open the first small museum that, that the, the Wiesenthal Center had. So while I was in Los Angeles, the United States government opened up a special office, which was called the Office of Special Investigations, solely for the purpose of prosecuting Nazi war criminals who were living in the United States. And one of the people working there, an investigator by the name of Bill Crane, came to visit me in Los Angeles and asked for our endorsement. So when he went to speak to survivors, he could tell them that the Wiesenthal Center endorsed cooperation with the Department of Justice's Office of Special Investigations, because in many cases, survivors were a little wary of government. This was a new government agency. They didn't know how they'd be treated. So uh, this meeting had a very strong impact on me. And I said to myself uh, that, Here's this guy, Bill Crane, he's not Jewish, and he's very sincere and very dedicated to the task. And I'm, I already have a master's degree in Holocaust studies. There must be some way I can help him in a serious way besides giving him an endorsement. So I came up with this idea of a database of all the survivors in North America to facilitate finding potential witnesses. And to be perfectly honest, the, the project was a total failure because the Wiesenthal Center was not that anxious to invest any money in it. But uh, what did happen was that because of that project, I was in contact with the people in Washington in the Office of Special Investigations. And before I went back to Israel, I recommended to them that they should, uh, they need a, a researcher on the ground in Israel because Israel has the largest number of survivors. Yad Vashem has the largest archival collection in the world, and it would be very helpful to, to them to have someone on the ground. And, and uh, they offered me the job, of course. That was, that was my intention. Uh, I started out working on a two-month contract, then a four-month contract, then six-month contract, and I worked there for six years. Uh, but what ultimately happened was that while working for them, I discovered a way to 
identify the post-war immigration destinations of thousands of Nazi war criminals by using the records of the International Tracing Service, which was set up by the Red Cross after World War II. And even though, I mean, in those days there, was, there were no databases, so it was a collection of over 16 million index cards on uh, microfilm, over 3,600 microfilms. And uh, although there was no indication on the cards that a person might have been or was a Nazi collaborator, I had other sources to check that. And just to be sure that I wasn't dreaming, I took, I made a list of 49 Lithuanians and Latvians who I knew were Nazi war criminals, I had proof. And I went looking for them, and within a matter of moments, I found the immigration destinations of 16 out of the 49. Now, what I have to explain also is that the documents, the originals were in Arlson near Frankfurt, and the collections were owned by 11 different countries. But there was no free access to this material. In other words, only, you could only get an answer from them if you were asking about a first-degree relative. So if I were to write to them and say, I'm looking for Nazi so-and-so, you know, Antanas Kitsevich or some the Lithuanian murder squad, the 12th Battalion, they wouldn't give me the information, for example. So, and the only place where there was free access was at Yad Vashem in Israel. <laughs> and I was the beneficiary of that, which is absolutely amazing because I had originally gone for the first time to use that material for a completely different issue. Something that had to do with Mengele, the Mengele case. But uh, that discovery really changed, changed my, the course of my life. I, from being a, a, star, a PhD student in history, history of the Holocaust, I became a Nazi hunter. Okay, so before we jump into your actual career and some of the specific cases uh, of um, Nazi war criminals, you did mention that you also had a mystical reason for um, doing the job that you do. Can you, do you want to elaborate at all on that? Okay, so uh, when I was born, my grandfather was uh, Samuel Saar. Uh, he was one of the leaders, one of the important people at Shiva University, but also someone who was chosen by the Joint Distribution Committee to head the efforts to provide the survivors with uh, their religious needs. And he was sent twice, twice by, by the Joint to Europe for extended periods. Once in 45 to, to sort of survey the entire situation, what was going on, what was needed, et cetera. Later on to head something called the Central Orthodox Committee, which was a uh, organization which dealt with the religious needs of survivors all over Europe. In any event, when I was born on August 5th, 1948, my father sent the cable to his father-in-law, okay? The cable said, Esther gave birth to a boy. In other words, my mother, that's me, I'm the boy, okay? And my parents had already chosen a name. And my grandfather sent back a cable, suggest name him Ephraim. Ephraim was his br brother. My grandfather was one of six boys. He was the oldest, Ephraim was the youngest. The five oldest ones had managed to get away from Eastern Europe before the Shoah. Actually, in my grandfather's case, even before World War I. So they were all safe. But Ephraim had refused to go to America, apparently because he, he was a Rosh Hashiva and he thought it, it wasn't a good place to be a Rosh Hashiva or whatever. And he was murdered by the Nazis in Lithuania. 
And ironically, a lot of the work that I've done has been in Lithuania. So, uh, you know, my parents accepted the suggestion to call me Ephraim. Those days, children listened to their parents about names. <laughs> Today, this would never happen, okay? Um, so I was named for Rabbi Ephraim Zah, who was killed in Vilna. And I later actually found out the circumstances of his death, which was quite, quite a story. But, um, but we never talked about it. In our, in our family. Um, the, the fact that my, gra my great uncle had been an Eloy, an exceptional uh, Talmud, uh, Talmud uh, student and teacher, was more important than the fact that uh, he had been killed in the Shoah. And, and my family didn't know really the details. We never found it out till many years later on, on a trip to Lithuania. Wow. Well, let's get into some of the work you've done and we'll touch of course on Lith Lithuania um, shortly. Um, uh, your focus in the mid-1980s was Nazis living in Western countries. Um, can you tell us a bit about who, who were these uh, Nazis? How did they get to the, to the West? And um, what role did you play in trying to bring some of them to justice? Okay, most people um, think of South America as the primary destination for Nazi war criminals. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, but the situation is much more complicated. The people who went to South America were, for the most part, very well-known, very prominent Nazi war criminals, Germans and Austrians, and some Croatians. Now, the reason for that was that these people knew that they had to run because it was clear that the Allies were going to look for them after the war was over. So there was a rescue network set up by an Austrian priest named Alius Hudel. H-U-D-A-L, who ran a seminary in Rome. And his assistant was a, a Croatian fascist, Ustashev priest named Kronoslav Dragonovich. So these are the peoples who, who prepared safe houses from Germany and Austria and Croatia uh, across the Alps, uh, in, the, in the cases of Germany and Austria, to until people could get to Genoa. In any wow. event, so they, those people went to South America, primarily to Argentina, but not only to Argentina. Some went to Brazil, some went to Chile, some went to Paraguay, uh, and that's and, and one or two to Bolivia also. In any event, um, but what most people don't know is that the people, those people that I'm talking about, actually had a choice to choose between going to South America or going to the Middle East, to Egypt or to Syria, okay? Now, that's a relatively small group. The people who went to Anglo-Saxon countries were overwhelmingly Eastern Europeans. Very few, if any, Germans or Austrians. They were Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Romanians, Hungarians, Poles. Etc. And um, they, the, the Nazis who came to the West could be divided into three groups. If we take the United States, for example, the estimate is that 10,000 Nazi war criminals entered the United States. But they're, they're made up of three groups, which are quite different. Okay. 
Two of those groups were people who were brought to the United States, knowingly brought to the United States, and were given tasks that the Americans thought were very important for them. So you had 150 German scientists, engineers, and technicians who had worked on the V-2 rockets, which was the ultimate weapon that Hitler thought would win the war. And uh, they were first in a base in Punamunda on the Baltic Sea, and then they were moved to a huge factory to produce the V-2s in the Harz Mountains in East Germany, in Thuringia. In any event, they were brought to the United States for their expertise. In other words, it was clear that the Germans had advanced uh, knowledge and technology coming to ballistic missiles. And the, Russia, and the Americans were afraid that they might fall into the hands of the Soviets because it was clear already immediately after World War II that the Cold War had begun or would begin very shortly. So these people were brought knowingly to the United States. Second group, and it's not clear how many, actually how many people are in this group, probably only several dozen, of people whom the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the pre-runner the pre of, uh, of the CIA, were trained to serve as spies in their countries of origin. Now, they were going to be sent back to behind the Iron Curtain, to those countries where they had been from, and they, they would spy for the United States. It's not, it's not clear how many of those people actually were trained, how many actually were sent back. In some cases, I'm, my, my understanding is that some of them were actually caught. But again, a few let's assume a few dozen. But the overwhelming bulk of the people who came in were people who had absolutely no prominence, were not known to the authorities, in rare, except in rare cases. In other words, who's going who's gonna to care, who's going to know who was the Lithuanian police chief in the city of, in the small town of Kedan, for example, or even in a larger city, you know, like Shaolai or, or in Tells or in Jagger or wherever, okay? So these people didn't even bother changing their names. And the same is true for Canada, for Australia, for Great Britain and New Zealand. The only important Anglo-Saxon country that did not admit Nazi war criminals was South Africa, because South Africa was totally closed to immigration after World War II. Wow. So, but I have to add something. I think that at the time when these people entered from 47 to 52, but mostly for 48, 49, 50, there was less knowledge of the role played by the locals in the mass murder of Jews, especially in the Holocaust by bullets. In other words, the Holocaust, the final solution was implemented initially by the Einsatzgruppen, who numbered a few thousand men and who had to cover an area from Estonia in the north, the North Sea, all the way down to Odessa, the Black Sea. That's a front of 1,500 miles. Yeah. Now, they numbered only a few thousand people. They murdered a million and a half people individually. Each one of those people had to be murdered individually. So how is it possible? Well, they had plenty of help. So one of the things that I talk about a lot is the fact that only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis 
include participation in systematic mass murder. In other words, elsewhere in Europe, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, uh, Western Europe, the Nazis didn't expect the collaborators to do the murders. The collaboration ended at the train station or at the port. So in Norway, people were sent by boat. In Greek islands, people were sent by boat. All the others were sent by train. Somewhere else to be murdered by someone else. So that somewhere else was Eastern Europe. And that someone else were the, the Nazis and their local helpers. Well, I, I want to talk a bit about that and some of the lessons and questions to be asked in terms of just local populist participation in the Holocaust. And we'll get there in a moment. Um, but I also want to talk about a specific case, which I know you played a very pivotal role in. Um, in the 1990s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, your attention moved to newly independent Eastern European countries um, and sort of hunting down Nazi war criminals there. And you played a critical role in the exposure, arrest and prosecution of uh, a Nazi criminal called Dinko Sakic, who was a former concentration camp commandant charged with the deaths of what, uh, from my research, seems like several, several thousand people. Um, and who was hiding, he, in, in his case, he was hiding in Argentina. Can you tell us about this case and, uh, you know, how you tracked him down? Okay, first of all, you, um, Dingo Shakish was one of several commanders of the concentration camp of Yesenovac. Yesenovac was a Croatian concentration camp created by Croatians, run by Croatians, and you have to understand that once Yugoslavia was occupied by the Nazis and the Italians in 1941, they carved up what had been Yugoslavia into several parts. And one of the, those parts was what they called the independent state of Croatia, which had not existed for hundreds of years prior to this. And that state consisted of what's today Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and a small piece of Serbia. Now, this country was turned over to a fascist terrorist movement called Eustasha. And they were notoriously anti-Serb, anti-Semitic, anti-Roma. And they began in the territory. That their problem was that the territory that they received as the independent state of Croatia, there were many people from those minorities. There were hundreds of thousands of Serbs, 40,000 Jews, many thousands uh, Roma. Then there were their political opponents. Those were the people who were the victims in a camp called Yasenovac. Shakic was the last living concentration camp commander who was alive. And it wasn't very hard to find him because he wasn't, he wasn't really hiding. And for some reason, he felt quite secure, which is pretty stupid, I have to say. Thank God. But thank God for the stupidity of Nazis. They, they, that very often helps us find them. If you take the case of Eichmann, Eichmann's sons went under the name Eichmann. And, and the reason he was caught was that one of his sons went out with a girl whose father had been in Dachau, was a half Jew, whose father was Jewish, and he'd, he'd been incarcerated in Dachau, and she brought him home, and, and, and he said, Eichmann, you know, all of a sudden it lit a bell, and he realized this might be the son of the infamous Adolf Eichmann. Wow. And that's what led to his capture, to his kidnapping and his trial. Wow. 
So we we exposed him in Argentina. We we sent a uh, Argentinian journalist helped us find him. He was living in a place called Santa Teresita, 250 miles south of Buenos Aires. And um, before this journalist Jorge Camarasa went with the TV crew to uh, interview him, he met with survivors of the Asenomax. So in other words, he had a good idea of what was going on. So he, he went to knock on Shakic's door and <laughs> Shakic comes to the door and Camarasa says to him, are you Dinko Shakic? He says, yes. You were the commandant of Yasenovats. He says, yes, now listen, for a minute, stop for a minute. Usually when Nazis are about to be discovered, it's, they have two answers. One is it's not me, mistaken identity, or it's me and I didn't do it. Okay, what does Dinko Shakin say? It's me and I did it. So Kamarasa asked him if he could ask him a few questions. Can they, so Shakin invited them into the house and this is all being filmed by a TV crew. And uh, they sat down in the living room and uh, Kamarasa says to Shakic, you're Dinko Shakic. You were the commandant of Yashenovac. It was one of the worst camps in Europe. Terrible things were taking place, terrible tortures and, and, and a high, high mortality rate. So Shakic says to him, what are you talking about? Yashenovac was a penal colony. Every country has its penal colonies, and every person who's in Yasenovas deserved to be there. So Kamarasa says to listen, I spoke to survivors of Yasenovas. You can't fool me. I, they talked to me about the epidemics, at the high death rate, the, the terror, the executions. So Shaki stops him and says, listen, you don't get it. The problem with Yasenovas was they didn't let us finish the job. And if I were asked to do this, I would do it again. Totally unrepentant to Stasha. Wow. So the next day, this interview was shown on national television in Argentina, ironically on Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. <laughs> that was just a coincidence. And what year was this? What, what year are we talking? What? What year, what year are we talking? 98. Okay. Anyway, so, and then the question was, well, where should he be put on trial? Because, I mean, there were six different countries which in theory might be the site of the trial. One was Argentina, where he was living. Two was Israel, because some of the victims were Jews. Three was Germany, because they were allied with Nazi Germany, the Ustasha, even though there were no Germans or Austrians at the at Yasenovas. And then there were the three countries from the Balkans, because the area of the camp was, part was in Croatia and part was in what's today Bosnia. And then of course there's Serbia because most of the victims were Serbs. So if we were thinking only result in terms of punishment, I mean, we should have gone to Serbia because as I half jokingly say, within five minutes of being convicted, he'd be hanging from the highest tree in Belgrade. Most of the victims were Serbs. But in Serbia, they didn't need the lesson of Yasenovac. That's the question we asked ourselves. Well, who needs the lesson of Yasenovac the most? So we ultimately opted for Croatia, even though the president of Croatia at the time, Franjo Tudjman, the father of Croatian independence, um, had written in a book that he wrote that the Jews had um, 
had uh, exaggerated the number of victims of the Shoah from 1 million to 6 million. And the, the Jews who ran Yasser Nomads. Now, this is so idiotic, I'm telling you. And, and, and Tujman himself, his brother, had been killed by the Ustasha. But when he became a Croatian politician, he played the nationalist card. So, but in any event, he was sent to Croatia and they actually did a very good job in terms of the trial and he was convicted and he was sentenced to the maximum sentence, which was 20 years. Uh, he was not tried for genocide, which was a political decision. He should have been tried for a triple genocide, genocide against the Serbs, against the Jews and against the Roma. But in any event, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was 78 at the time and he died in prison. And he has to be buried in his Ustasha uniform. And the worst part of it was that the priest who gave the, the eulogy said the following, and listen, listen very carefully. He said, it's true that Dinko Shakic did not observe all the 10 commandments, okay? And you'll allow me to interject, like thou shalt not murder, for example, but he's a symbol for Croatia. But the trial did have a big impact in Croatia. And um, as a result, se several places whose names had been changed, and um, in other words, to, basically to hide Ustasha, to hide Ustasha uh, crimes, those, those places had their names changed back to what the original, they originally were. So in other words, the, the, um, the victims of fascism square which had become the heroes of Croatia Square, was, went back to being the victims of fascism. And Mila Budak, who was the deputy head of state, the street name for him is split, was, was changed back to its original name. But it wore off after a while. But the trial was very important in the history of Croatia, there's no question. And this is what we wanted to replicate in all the countries of Eastern Europe, where we faced the same kind of problems of Holocaust distortion primarily. So what would you say over your um, career has been the most important milestone or, or achievement in terms of trying to bring uh, Nazi war criminals to justice? I, I would say to you, in practical terms, it was the conviction of Dinko Shakic. Right. In practical right. terms. But in judicial terms, in moral terms, the most important thing that we did was to help convince um, United States, although we were less involved in that case, than other countries, Canada, Australia, Great Britain, to pass special laws to enable the prosecution of Nazi war criminals. The only place we failed was in New Zealand. And uh, in New Zealand, this is no excuse, but there were, there were fewer cases than the other countries. And what is your response to people that say, once you have uh, former Nazis um, who, let's say, either they were involved in the camps, but they didn't necessarily kill anyone directly, or they're in their late 90s now and they're ill and decrepit and they can't even, they've even lost their minds, so it's not worth bringing them to justice. What do you say to, to those people? Okay, first of all, we're not talking about people who are ill and cannot face justice. They will never be brought to trial for health reasons, okay? And we have lost people along the way Either, be, either by death or by ill health, okay? So the answer is very simple. And you could wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll dictate it to you. 
because I've, I've been asked this question at least a thousand times. One, the passage of time in no way diminishes the guilt of the killers. Two, old age should not afford protection to people who committed such heinous crimes. Just because someone reaches the age of 90 doesn't turn a Nazi war criminal, a mass murderer in some cases, to a righteous Gentile. Three, and this is something that was emphasized by Simon Wiesenthal, what we owe the victims. We owe it to the victims to, do, to try and maximize justice and bring as many as possible of these people to, to trial and to accountability. Four, these trials are important in the fight against Holocaust denial and Holocaust distortion. Five, it sends a very powerful message that if you commit crimes like this, even 70 years later, there'll be someone who will try and find you and bring you to justice. Absolutely. Well, I, I fully, fully... One second, there's two other things. These people are the last people on earth who deserve any sympathy because they had no sympathy for their victims, some of whom were older than they are today. And last but not least, in all my experience, the cases that I was very involved in, I've never encountered a case of a Nazi collaborator slash war criminal who ever expressed any regret whatsoever. Wow, wow. that is remarkable. I totally, totally agree with you. Um, you've also been critical of declarations um, or positions that make any comparisons to the Holocaust, well, uh, with, with other tragedies um, that have taken place or other atrocities. Can you explain to us what is it that makes the Holocaust a unique event in human history? Because I think this is such an important point to clarify. Okay, so first of all, we're facing a uh, very serious challenge by the new Eastern European democracies who are pressing to promote the canard of equivalency between communist crimes and Nazi crimes. And uh, they're doing this because they want to deflect attention from their own crimes, okay? They're doing this because only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis include active participation in systematic mass murder, which is a horrible thing. And so many of their people, of their, of their own nationals, were involved in these crimes, and they tried to hide it. And then there's the issue of their heroes, their new democracies. They need heroes. Who are their heroes? Those who fought against the communists after World War II. Well, ah, but one second. Some of them murdered Jews during the Holocaust. How can they be a national hero? But that doesn't disqualify them in some countries. And last but not least, they're pushing for a joint memorial day for all the victims of totalitarian regimes that he wanted on August 23rd, the day of the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and Soviet Union. And what if such a proposal were accepted, that would mean it would make uh, International Holocaust Day superfluous. You know, this would be a day for more victims. More people would be pleased that their victims were being, were being commemorated. But very simply, in, in response to your question, what differentiates the Holocaust from, say, communism, okay? One is the ideologi ideological commitment to the mass annihilation of entire people. In other words, in communi under communist rule, they never tried to wipe out a people. 
Ukrainians try and claim that the Holodomor, the famine that was engineered by Stalin in the early 30s, was directed against them. But other people also suffered. It was, a, it was against a specific economic class, the Kulaks. They wanted to, to eliminate these small farmers and put them on kolkhozim. Okay, so in other words, it was a, a, a struggle against an economic class and not against an ethnic people or a nationality or, or whatever. The other point is industrialized mass murder. Never in the history of mankind have we seen the apparatus created for the mass murder of hundreds of thousands of individuals and applied to, to so many of them. And, and how does that, how would that compare to other genocides that target a specific people? Are you saying it's, it's specifically the mass industrial, the industrialization, the governmental industrialized nature of it? You listen, the in Rwanda the genocide was carried out by machetes primarily. Okay? Uh, not exclusively, but primarily. In other words, but this was this was like the harnessing of modern science and technology for mass annihilation. And this was not the case, not the case in Darfur, it's not the case in, in Rohingya of the Rohingya in Myanmar, uh, or uh, or in, in Biafra or in Cambodia which some of those are genocide, some of those are ethnic cleansing. I mean, listen, you know, there's a, there's a tendency today to every, every victim wants his, 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 his um, suffering to be categorized as genocide because that's the ultimate. But not every tragedy is the genocide. I'll give you an example. One of the worst examples is the, the case in Srebrenica of the murder of the Bosnian Muslims. 8,000 Muslim, Muslim men were murdered by the uh, Serbian uh, or the Bosnian Serb army headed by Ratko Mladic and Karadzic. Okay, but before that murder took place, the Serbs released the women and the men and let the women and the children let them go free. So what kind of genocide is that? No, but because of political reasons, some lawyers uh, decided that that is genocide, and that gave the Americans the right to bomb Belgrade. But that's, it's not even close to a genocide. Absurd. Right, right. Okay, I want to talk a bit about your new book that came out recently called Our People, Discovering Lithuania's Hidden Holocaust. Can you tell us a bit about this book and how you came about uh, writing it and what, what, what are some of the key findings? Okay, this book was something very special. It stands out in my mind, in my memory, as probably one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. And let me just explain what happened. I, I spent a lot of time and effort and energy trying to get the Lithuanians to prosecute uh, their Nazi war criminals who hadn't been punished. And quite a few of them had run away to America where they could not be tried for the crimes themselves because the crimes were not uh, committed in the United States and the victims were not Americans. But what the Americans decided to do, because they didn't want to allow these people to remain in America, was to prosecute these people for immigration naturalization violations. And they would lose their citizenship and be deported. And at least 15 of people who served in Lithuania security, who served in police units, who served in death squads, were stripped of their American citizenship and kicked out of America and almost all of them returned to Lithuania. So in effect, the Lithuanians could 
relatively easily bring these people to justice. But the Lithuanians were doing everything possible not to bring them to justice. So ultimately, they put three people on trial. Uh, two of them were the heads of Lithuanian security in the Vilnius district, which guard, they guarded the ghetto, the Vilna ghetto. They prevented any Jews from escaping. They prevented any Lithuanians from helping the Jews. And there were some such Lithuanians, God bless them. And they were the ones who took the Jews to Pona, which was the mass murder site of the Jews of Vilna. In any event, it took, ultimately there were three trials. Uh, two of the people were, were convicted. Not a single person sat one day in jail. And the Lithuanians turned the whole process into a farce, which is exactly what they wanted. In other words, if there's no punishments, maybe there were no crimes. They didn't even force these people to show up at the trials. It, it, was, it was a catastrophe, really. So, and what happened was that we ultimately ran out of suspects. So the issue became a fight over the narrative. What's the history of the Shoah in Lithuania? So from the very beginning, it was clear that the Lithuanians were making efforts to hide the extent of Lithuanian complicity. And uh, I many times confronted them. And um, I, also, uh, I also worked together with people like Professor David Katz and others uh, to try and convince them of the accurate narrative of the Shoah. Now, you have to understand something. The figures are the following. Of the 220,000 Jews who lived in Lithuania during the Nazi occupation, 212,000 approximately were murdered. In addition to that, more than 5,000 Jews were brought to Lithuania to be murdered by the Lithuanians from France, Germany, Austria, and, and Czechoslovakia. In addition, a Lithuanian unit called the 12th Lithuanian Auxiliary Police Battalion was sent on October 6, 1941 to Minsk to murder Belarusian Jews. And they murdered at least 20,000 Belarusian Jews. So in other words, Little Lithuania which at that time had maybe 2.5 million people, was responsible for close to a quarter of a million Jews murdered. And something that no one, practically no one knows, there were less than a thousand Germans in Lithuania during the Nazi occupation. And 90% of the Jews murdered in Lithuania were murdered by shooting near their homes, which was very labor intensive. They have to arrest the Jews, they have to guard them. They have to take them to the murder spot. They have to shoot every single person individually or kill them by smashing their heads like they did to, to babies. Um, and then they have to cover up the pits. I mean, they have to dig up, someone has to dig a pit, then they have to cover up the pit, then they have to distribute the, the property and the belongings. Takes a lot, a lot of people. So we know of at least more than 20,000 Lithuanians who had some role in these crimes. So, in other words, the fight became a fight over the narrative. How, we, how are we going to convince them? And, and to be honest, I felt that I was not succeeding. And then, and then I said to myself, listen, why should they believe me? I'm a Jew from Bro originally from Brooklyn <laughs> who speaks with a New York accent and a kippah on my head. And why would, they, why would they believe me? What I'm telling them is so unpleasant for them it's so harmful to their egos and to their sense of nationality, it, it, it can't succeed. Now, what happened though was that 
And in 2014, I got an invitation from a very popular Lithuanian writer called Ruta Venegait. Now, I didn't know at the time how popular she was, but she invited me to speak. She, she found out that her relatives were involved in killing Jews. And she wanted to atone for it. So she thought that one of the biggest problems is the, the ignorance about the Jews in Lithuania. So she started a project called Being a Jew. She took the kids to the, to the shul, non-Jewish kids, and they had someone from the community teach about Jewish traditions, Jewish history, Jewish holidays, etc. Then they had a beautiful ceremony on Yom HaShoah in front of the city hall. And then they took them to Ponar, to the mass murder site, where everything was explained to them. Anyway, so she offered to bring me to Lithuania and even to pay me for a lecture. Now, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't come to participate in her conference, the conference that she was ha having, because I had committed to lectures in the United States and fell on Yom HaShoah on the Holocaust Memorial Day. But I was in Lithuania a month before that to protest against the neo-Nazi march in Vilna, in Vilnius. I said, you know what, let me meet this woman. I haven't been invited to speak in 20 years in Lithuania. I'm persona non grata there. I mean, the mamish hate me. I'm the most hated Jew in Lithuania. So I met her, I met, I met Ruta, and all of a sudden she tells me her relatives were involved in killing Jews. I nearly fell off my chair. She's the first Lithuanian who ever admitted that. I had come to Lithuania tons of, tens of times. No one had ever admitted that to me. So I said, one second. Then, then I found out that she's such a popular author. I said, one second, listen, if they don't believe me about the narrative, maybe they'll believe Ruta Vanagaita. So we started sort of discussing what we could do, what kind of project can we do together? And we decided we'll go to mass murder sites, and we ultimately went to 40, five in Belarus, because I told you that a Lithuanian unit murdered Jews in Belarus. So 35 in Lithuania, five in Belarus. And we chose the places based on our biographies. Because my uncle, Ephraim Zar, who I'm named for, was murdered in Lithuania. And both my maternal grandparents were born in Lithuania, in different places. So I had a whole bunch of places that I am connected to. And Ruta, of course, grew up in Lithuania. So we, we decided to go from place to place and see what, what we could see to try and, and, see, and speak to eyewitnesses, to go to local museums, to speak to people living right next to the mass graves. It's shocking. People living 50 meters from a mass grave of hundreds of, of, of Jews murdered. And, and we taped our conversations as we went from place to place. And we argued and we, dis we discussed, we argued, uh, we, we spent, hours talking about the identity of the killers, the motivation of the killers, the role of anti-Semitism, the role of alienation between Jews who are more educated, let's say, than the Lithuanian farmers in the periphery, because 100,000 Jews lived in provincial towns, where the, in the middle of the town the Jews lived, they were the artisans, they were the merchants, uh, and their situation was usually a little better than that of the farmers. So maybe there was jealousy. I mean, we, we had very interesting conversations, which were taped and which form a very important part of the book. And um, 
I mean, we had some very moving stories. We had the story of a woman who told us that uh, she was very friendly with a Jewish family. She was eight years old. The Jewish family had a girl eight years old. When the decrees against the Jews started in her family, they started talking about possibly saving her friends. So I said to her, through Ruta, because I don't speak Lithuania, I said to her, well, you must have been afraid of the Germans. So she said, no, we were afraid of our neighbors. And she started crying and it broke my heart, I'm telling you. We cried along with her. And I'm almost sure it's the first time she was able to tell the story to someone who empathized with her, with her sorrow at the loss of her friend. Okay, we went to museums. Every, every middle-sized town has a local museum. So in Panovich, which is a very famous town in Jewish history because of the famous yeshiva, the Panovich yeshiva, we went into the museum. So I asked someone, is there anything here? There were seven, almost 7,000 Jews in Panovich before the Shoah. I asked him, is there anything here on the, on the uh, Jewish community? He says, no. I said to him, do you know that millions of people all over the world know the name of your city? So he said, what? What are you talking about? So I had to explain to him, what's a yeshiva? What's a gemara? What's a, what do they do? What is Talmud? What do they do uh, to become a rabbi? I said, you know the conditory opposite the bus station, bakery conditory? That's the building, the Panovich Yeshiva, okay? So I came out of there. I was so angry. I said to, I said to Ruth, I said it to her in Hebrew first, even though at that point she didn't understand Hebrew. I said, Ratzachta Yarashta Machakta. Ratzachta, you murdered. Yarashta, you inherited. And Machakta, you erased. In other words, and this is a play on the encounter between the prophet Elijah in the book of Kings and King Ahab. There was a, a King Ahab had a neighbor called Navot, who had a beautiful vineyard. And Ahab wanted to buy the vineyard from Navot, but Navot refused to sell it to him. So he had him murdered. And not long after that, the King Ahab encountered Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet. And Eliyahu said to him, Ratzachta Vagam Yarashta, you murdered and you also inherited. And here it's Ratzachta Yarashta Machachta. You murdered the Jews, you inherited their property, and you erased their memory. So we were we made sure this book came out in Lithuanian, and uh, Ruta's publisher agreed begrudgingly to print it. They thought she was crazy that she's writing about the Holocaust, but she said to them, "You want me to continue writing for you?" She her previous book had sold fifty thousand copies in a country of two and a half million people. So, of course, they wanted to continue writing. They said, Ruta, you wrote a book about women. Why don't you write a book about men? She said, yeah, I'll write a book about men. But first, you're going to publish what I'm writing now. Ah, Ruta, what are you writing about the Holocaust? You should have seen their faces. It's like they were shocked, upset, didn't know what to do with themselves. Wow. Wow. So they said, we'll do it on one condition. You don't tell anybody what you're writing about until you launch the book. And that's what we did. And it caught the government by surprise. And they were furious, absolutely furious. Wow. Yeah. See, the, the publisher published 2,000 copies of the book. They sold out in 48 hours. 
And ultimately, 20,000 people bought, 20,000 copies were bought. And 100,000 people read the book because it was the most popular book in public libraries for three years running. So this book made a real dent in, in the lies of the Lithuanian government. And wow. uh, a lot of people now know the truth. And Ruth wow. wrote a second book, which is coming out in English soon. She asked the questions about the Holocaust. And Christoph Dickman, the world's leading expert on Lithuania, he answered them. It's like a primer. How exactly the Holocaust played out in Lithuania? Who made the decisions? Why were they? When were they implemented? How were they implemented? Were they successful? Etc. I wish I had a book like this on every single country in which the Shoah took place. Amazing book, and hopefully uh, it'll it'll reach a wide public. Absolutely, it can be purchased on uh, Amazon from what I've from what I've seen. Um, we've only got time for just a, a few more minutes um, of chatting, um, so I wanted to ask. Two final questions. First of all, where, where does your work lie now in 2021? Um, are there still Nazi war criminals out there to find and try? What, what, what are you focusing on now? Okay, first of all, there's still are Nazis out there because of the extension of life expectancy. In other words, people are living longer. I half jokingly say people without a conscience live even longer, less stress. And, uh, and for example, in Six weeks, a trial will open up in Germany of the, the secretary of the commandant of Stutthof, the camp Negedansk, first camp built outside the Reich, where 65,000 people were murdered or died, 28,000 Jews. Um, and, it, and eight days later, a trial of someone who served as a guard in Sachsenhausen concentration camp, someone who's 100 years old, in good physical shape, and uh, approved by the doctors to participate in the trial. And, and there are more than a dozen additional investigations going on. But I have to explain that the only reason this is happening is because of a very dramatic change in German prosecution policy. Uh, until 2008, the, you needed to prove a specific crime against a specific victim. You, you even need to know the name of the victim and that the motivation was uh, racial hatred. That is no longer the case now. Anyone who served in a death camp, a camp with apparatus for mass murder can be charged with accessory to murder uh, and convicted on that charge on, based on service alone. Wow, wow, okay. So there's still more to uncover and more for examples i'm looking for survivors of the two camps of stutthof and the sachsenhausen and um i'm also in german law there's a possibility for people who lost the first degree relative to join the prosecution as co-plaintiffs which is a very nice thing actually and uh, it gives them a sense of closure so wow. we're, we're looking for them too wow I found, I found many. I found over 20 survivors of Skrithoff already. So what would you say are the biggest lessons that you've learned over the 40 years um, of your work? Um, and I want to ask specifically, because you've interacted with all kinds of people from across the Jewish world, the non-Jewish world, people who lived during um, the, 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 the era of the Holocaust, and... I want to know whether you, you consider it to be a blip 
a moment of madness uh, for the world? Or given everything that you've seen, do you think anti-Semitic hatred is always something that's hovering under the surface? I mean, you, I know you mentioned uh, that, that, that woman who said you know, she feared uh, her neighbor um, and just the people in her community and how they would so easily turn on others. What, what, what have been some of the lessons that you've learned about the human condition? Okay, first of all, is the absolute need for political will to bring Nazis to justice. And if there is no political will, and that political will can't be created, then there'll never be any justice. And uh, the best way to explain it to you is to compare a serial killer to a 90-year-old Nazi. In other words, if a serial killer were on the loose in any normal Western country, then... Uh, I'm sure the police would be looking for that person because the working assumption is that they will continue to strike, continue to murder people until they're incarcerated. But what are the chances of a 90-year-old Nazi repeating the crimes that he made during World War II? It's zero, of course. So this is an absolute prerequisite. Another point is the fact that there are, I was, I feel very privileged to have met a lot of wonderful people who helped us along the way, uh, many of them not Jews. So in other words, this whole business of Asaf Somaliakov, in other words, non-Jews hate Jews, which we find in the Gemara and which is sometimes thrown out by, uh, it's used by ultra-Orthodox uh, rabbis, I just don't buy it. In other words, I've met some of the most wonderful people imaginable. They were very helpful, many without any recompense, without any compensation. They did it because they knew it was the right thing to do. And uh, I made friends forever in a sense. And that's part of the consolation of working on an issue which is so incredibly frustrating. You're working against the clock. I lost people, I lost a guy who I spent years uh, trying to bring to justice because of uh, a uh, problematic court in Hungary. I, I lost a guy a week before he was supposed to, a 92-year-old high police official in the town had sent 15,700 Jews to Auschwitz. I lost him a week before the trial was supposed to start because he, he dropped dead, he died. I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And, um, but the only way that you can deal with it at least for me, is that when, when I encounter these setbacks, I think of the survivors, I think of the victims, what they went through was 100 million times worse than anything that I can experience or any frustration on my part. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, it's really heartening what you've said, that, that one of the things you've learned is you've seen the good within humanity and found the willingness to... to, to um, uh, f find and fight uh, for justice among um, non-Jewish people around the world. That's that's really um, heartening to hear. And um, it's funny that you, you mentioned Esau and uh, Esau, Esau and Jacob Yaakov as that being a principle that, that they hate one another. But I, I would note that uh, towards the end of their lives, they actually embrace one another and they and they kiss. And so um, to me, I've seen that as some kind of uh, symbol of potential hope that there can be reconciliation among Jews and non-Jews as we uh, uh, progress. Let's hope that's true on a national level soon. <laughs>
Yeah, it's it's it is it is my it's my hope. Um, but um, Dr. Ephraim Zorov, thank you so much uh, for taking out the time to talk to us. But more importantly, thank you for all the work you've done over the course of all these decades in um, fighting for the Jewish people and fighting uh, for justice. Um, it's really greatly appreciated. You can, if you type in Ephraim Zorov into uh, Amazon, you'll be able to find some of his books and his works, uh, which are really fascinating, and we encourage you uh, to get them. Uh, but until perhaps the next time, uh, Dr. Zirov, thank you so much for coming on JTV.